Hello out there, I'm Will. And I'm Whitney. And you're listening to Yelling About Superheroes. This is episode 15, The Incredibles Part 2. Spoiler alert, it was great. But seriously, you can expect spoilers for Pixar's second superhero outing in this episode. Hey folks, welcome back. Yeah, so if you listen to last week's episode, you'll know that this episode is part two of our discussion of The Incredibles as you know, a media entity. That said, if you haven't listened to part one of our discussion, you should probably pause this episode and go back and do that. Okay, I'll just assume you've done it. So, yeah. With our last... um, Yeah. Yeah, with our last episode, we were planning to talk about both Incredibles movies, and (laughs) we ran pretty long on that, so we've cut it up into two parts. Yeah, we we were just talking about the first movie for like over an hour, um, unedited at least. We'll yep. see how long it is. And this time we are coming back to talk about the second. Yeah, which was really good. It did not disappoint me. And I had high expectations for any sequel to this phenomenal movie. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting because the first movie has been stewing around in our heads for 14 years now. Yeah, and we only The saw... second one has been around there for... A few days. Four days. By this point, you'll, you're listening to this well after we saw it. Um, but as of right now, it's only been sitting in our heads for about four days. So who knows? We may have additional thoughts on it later. I don't know. So we don't know. I'm, I'm not going to go at this chronologically, at least at first, because the main kind of conceit of the movie is now centered entirely on the what had been an interesting plot point, but not the focus of the first movie, of the illegalization and potential re-legalization. Yeah, fight for legalization of superheroes and superhero activity. And because the actual laws involved here are nebulously defined, it's not made it's not made super clear on how exactly superheroes are banned, like if people can't use their powers in public at all or what. It's actually interesting. They talk about like we're going to make superheroes legal again, and we're going to make superhero work legal. And it's never really clarified exactly what those laws mean, probably because that's not this necessary is for to be, their core idea. Yeah, but, and this is supposed to be a family movie. They probably don't want to bore little kids with the minutia of ethics in a superhero world and all that. Although, me, personally, I would love to know about all that. Give me all the world-building details. Yeah, I'm just curious as to like just how much of this is could almost be a form of criminalizing identity. Oh, I mean, that's exactly how you're supposed to read it, I think. Like the analogy is too obvious not to be made. And I think I I even talked about in the last episode how easy it is to apply queer theory to, you know, make an analogy to being closeted with uh, this movie and with hiding superhero powers. Like it is an easy analogy to make. Certainly. So I've, certainly. I, I, don't think, I don't think I've ever thought about it as anything other than criminalizing identity. Yeah, I think that's true. I think I definitely see how the parallels there are pretty clear. It is also, it would be interesting to me to see exactly where the distinction is drawn between people having superpowers and people using superpowers and people using superpowers explicitly for superhero ends. Yeah, yeah, that's a distinction they don't really dive into much, I don't think. 
But yeah, this is all kind of me going off on a very immediate tangent on the basic idea of the movie here, which more or less centers yeah. on using basically media representation of superheroes to shape public identity. Um, I mean, not to shape public perception of superheroes in order to get them re-legalized. Yeah. Which would have been a very interesting thing to have around for our Heroes in the Headlines episode way oh back when. Oh my god, no kidding. No kidding. It's basically like, it's interesting to think about what happens in this movie in the context of sort of the pattern we identified in that episode. Like what we talked about a lot was this pattern of the media playing an antagonistic role and at times serving as a Greek chorus, a shorthand for public opinion. Whereas, you know, this movie actually reminds me a lot of what Wilson Fisk does with the media in the sense that Mm. the people involved are actively manipulating the news cycle, manipulating media images of themselves and of others. In Wilson Fisk, sorry, Wilson Fisk's case, ultimately not for good purposes, but rather differently in this case, in the case of The Incredibles too. Yeah, it is interesting that this kind of mass media manipulation is portrayed as basically a good thing, but it's also like they're not trying to twist the story or anything, um, which I think makes it less of a shady seeming thing because the only thing that they're really doing is putting cameras on the superhero suits and basically using that to directly show people the perspective of the superheroes almost in a very literal sense um, you could consider to be the more actively telling the superheroes sides of the story versus as I mentioned early on just seeing the destruction that is immediately associated with them in the public eye. I'm kind of staring in space right now because I just had a major realization. Does this not remind you of body cams on police in a way? Wow, I cannot believe I didn't think of that before, but yeah, and I'm not quite sure what to do with that because the whole well, I guess in both cases, the push behind putting body cams on police is accountability. And the same with superheroes. But it's this weird thing where the narrative in The Incredibles 2 very much like rides on this fundamental assumption that these supers are good people doing the right thing and people just need to see that. Whereas I feel like that rhetoric pops up a lot on the anti-body cam side of things. Like, oh, they've got police officers have got nothing to hide or whatever. See, that's the thing. Like... That almost puts the contrast pretty starkly then that, oh, we know the superheroes are doing the right thing. And if people can just see that they're doing the right thing, then they'll support them. Versus with the police thing, it's like, okay, people think that the cops are doing the wrong thing. And they've been caught on tape multiple times doing the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, so we put body cams on cops so they won't do the wrong thing or else Or that get... they can be like caught doing the wrong thing and held accountable for it. Yeah, or that yeah. so they won't do the wrong thing so people won't see that they're doing the wrong thing and yeah. like, I'm surprised turn that public opinion against did, them. I know there's been a lot of, I guess, kerfuffle around cops turning their body cams off for whatever reason or fears that footage could be manipulated. Mm. I had to go to the bathroom during what I hope wasn't a particularly crucial juncture of the movie. So it you might be better equipped to answer this than me. Crucial. Did that 
oh, dang it. Did those same sorts of concerns pop up at all? They actually didn't. It really seemed like the entire idea of the body cams for superheroes was a sincere proposal to get them publicly accepted. The only case where it's turned against them is when, like, at the end of the movie, the screen slaver, a.k.a. Spoiler, sorry. Yeah. Evelyn Deaver, Catherine Keener's character. Yeah. We will warn about spoilers in the intro. We don't have to worry about that now. Where squeak... Screen slaver. <laughs> where the screen slaver is monitoring the superheroes that she already has hypnotized using the cameras that are already on their suits. Which is not really a specific issue that with yeah, the I'm... whole body cam idea as much as just a particular exploitation yeah. of a thing that was already exploited. Yeah, man, this raises all sorts of interesting questions. I think especially so like... Did Elastigirl trust the... What was his name? Deavers? Winston Deaver? Yeah. Like, did Elastigirl trust Deaver that much to not use this footage for any nefarious ends or anything like that? I think Winston Deaver is very much an open book. He is. And... You know, I was suspecting that either him or Evelyn would be involved in the plot somehow. Yeah, I was sure but that it... he had some sort of agenda, honestly. I guess I just don't trust businessmen nowadays. Her, her, her. But yeah, he turned out to be entirely on the up and up, despite his if sister's If rather childlike. I, like, I will agree yeah. with Evelyn that he's a bit, you know, he's not boyish and nostalgic. No, definitely not. But yeah, no, I, I feel like we need to take a whole other episode, honestly, to address the whole body cam thing, not just with how it plays into like media perceptions, but also with how it plays into, I guess, larger senses of justice and justice systems within superhero narratives. Like there's has been this longstanding trope where superheroes are not necessarily above the law, but it's understood that they're necessary because the law and enforce or like, or law enforcers, I won't say law enforcement because it's a very particular thing, but law enforcers are inadequate. So some sort of mm-hmm. quote unquote extrajudicial things becomes necessary. And so like, how like does the idea of... Peeing off yeah. of that uh, paper you wrote back in school about that sort of thing? Yeah, it wasn't a paper entirely about that, but it was, it was something like that. So yeah, I'm going to have to think about how exactly this whole body cams on superheroes thing plays into that. That is a whole big can of worms. Yeah. And, it and I feel be... like I'm just now starting to comprehend the enormity of this plot point that actually I feel like kind of got ignored in the movie. Like I, 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 I have a lot of... so much got ignored as much as the movie didn't really focus on it except as a means to yeah. an end. Yeah, didn't really explore the but yeah. real world, world parallels of it and the implications thereof. Honestly, like I love this movie, but the sort of little world building tidbits we got left me with a lot of questions. I'm sure we'll get to those later. But yeah, there's it definitely could have been a very different issue of superheroes having to wear body cams if it was from an accountability perspective rather than a, oh, we're going to show them all how great you are perspective. Yeah, my God. Like, what if that had been the proposed solution as opposed to just banning superheroes entirely? What if it had started with body cams? That would have been so interesting. Yeah, it would, probably would have been a very different conversation when Elastigirl got her new suit. What now? 
I'm, what do you mean? I mean, like when they like started requiring body cams at that point, it would have been very different from when they offered her body cams for their purposes. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Anyway. Um, yeah. What else do we want to talk about? So Elastigirl herself in her oh, new role my is awesome. God. It's amazing. This movie absolutely did the right thing focusing on her. Yeah, like, I will as say... much as I love the first Incredibles movie, it's very much about Bob's nostalgia and how that's bound up with his ego. And while I think I it, that could say... be a really interesting exploration of like American superhero masculinity and all that, I need to think about that further. I loved that Elastigirl got so much screen time and genuine character awesome. development too. It was fantastic. Yeah, I would say that both movies do a really good job of not putting the spotlight too much on any particular character. Everyone gets their own story role, but the first movie does definitely put Mr. Incredible, a.k.a. Bob Parr, in the... puts him sort of separately from the rest of his family, and yeah, he which has is kind a of significant... Point. Yeah, and he has a significant plotline while... Elastigirl is with the kids and has a parallel plotline that kind of comes together near the end. Um, and then in the sequel, Elastigirl is the one who has her own plotline, while Bob's plot is just about him. Not just about, but is primarily about him uh, taking care of the kids while Elastigirl is bringing home the proverbial bacon. Yeah, yeah. And I think more about Bob's plot in this is more... Then, you know, just, oh, ha, 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 the dad has to be the stay-at-home parent for once. It's like him, I don't know, I feel like he sort of realizes that his particular skill set that has served him pretty well in life thus far, like we talked about in the last movie, um, not just super strength, but like exploiting loopholes in crappy insurance companies and doing like all sorts of stealth stuff. That yeah. means Jack. Super, when it comes to parenting, like he has to step yeah, up in terms of yeah. like emotional intelligence and stuff like that. And it's a really interesting dynamic because it is basic. It is that I wouldn't call it cliched or anything, but it's the very recognizable trope of the dad having to be a stay-at-home parent while the mom goes to work and the various adjustments involved therein. But mm-hmm. it also just feels like it's. I guess what it boils down to is just being a really well done iteration of it. Yeah. And I think for some of the reasons you mentioned as well as a lot of others. Yeah. And I think it's encapsulated by uh, full disclosure. I went to the bathroom just after this particular line and I don't quite remember how it went, but it's in the scene when Bob is like talking heart to heart with Violet and he basically yeah. says like, I'm so, I was so used to knowing what the right thing to do was. And now I don't know what that is anymore. Like that is, the perfect encapsulation of him having to figure out a whole new skill set in order to not screw up this parenting thing. Like, totally, he's having totally. to recalibrate majorly. And, like, realistically, I suppose in the barest, most simplified of senses, the, oh, ha-ha, dad has to stay at home now trope could be construed as sexist. And if done wrong, absolutely. I'm hesitant to call it that in this case i think the thing is like it's not an issue of oh the dad can't raise kids because his problems don't really stem from him not being a competent parent his problems stem 
in part from just the sudden change of status quo. Yeah, because it is a huge change for them. Also, in a not insignificant portion of dealing with Jack Jack suddenly oh, manifesting like about 17 a dozen, superpowers. Yeah, about like a, a dozen superhero superpowers at once and causing a lot of trouble with that. Yeah, that's huge. That should not be discounted by any means. Yeah. And I also you know, think Bob's it's like, like his ego does get in the way and I think he recognizes that. Yeah. That we see that very early on where after Elastigirl gets the job offer and Bob is like, and they they say to Bob like, yeah, we'll get to you, but we don't really want to start with the guy who is who usually causes lots of property damage. Yeah, which is pretty practical of them, honestly. Yeah, I thought that was a cool um, reasoning to go for that with. That yeah, no, it makes the, so much sense. Yeah, like of the three of them, Elastigirl is definitely the one who is the least destructive. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. I was and surprised. Prozor is really they... destructive, but he creates a lot of ice, and that would probably <laughs> cause practical problems. I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm almost surprised that. I suppose they wouldn't have necessarily wanted to date the movie by sort of connecting it to women's lib movements and being like, hey, we need an awesome, strong female superhero to set a really great example. And be with the times and stuff like that. I was kind of expecting that angle, although that may have been just more wishful thinking on my part than anything. I almost feel like the fact that they, that at no point is the different things that Bob and Helen each end up doing, none of their successes or struggles or the reasons that they're doing the things they are or are ever portrayed as gender-related at all. So... I think you're mostly right. I do do still keep thinking of the moment from the very beginning of the first movie when Elastigirl's like, come on, leave the saving the world to the men? I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. And they do do have that clip in some... Yeah, they do show that footage again. Yeah, I thought that was so cool. But yeah, I I just think it's interesting that... It is almost a gender-blind setup, except as far as, like, the different power sets that are based on things that might be associated with a character of a particular gender more readily, and the... I don't know. It's not gender-blind, but I would say that the role of how gender and sexism comes into the plot is kept entirely as subtext, which... I'm, I'm not really in a position to say whether that was a good or bad decision, but I think it was definitely an interesting one. Yeah. You know, that's something that occurred to me on this sort of rewatch of The Incredibles as well as, you know, viewing The Incredibles too. Not necessarily... I mean, it kind of occurred to me how relatively not in play gender is, but I also noticed that considering this is like implicitly set in the 1970s, the films don't really address race at all. Like, they have Frozone being, you know, living his best life and all that and stuff like that. Um, and even in The Incredibles 2, um, like the, I guess, limo driver or um, valet who gets, who opens the car door for them at Deaver's place, like DevTech or whatever. Yeah. Like, he's a black guy, but he's not just some, like, faceless black sir. And he gets to have a fanboy moment with Frozone. And he looks like Obama. 
He does. He does. It was so great. I wish they'd actually gotten Obama to voice him. That would have been... I don't think uh, President Obama's going to be doing cameo voice roles in Pixar movies, but it would have um, been funny. Are you kidding? He totally should. That would be amazing. I'm not saying he shouldn't. I'm just saying he probably wouldn't. Are you sure about that? I feel like he, I feel like he might. Uh, anyway. We'll see. We'll see anyway. anyway. <laughs> hint, hint. Obama, if you're listening to this. Yeah. President Obama, if you're listening to our stupid podcast. <laughs> anyway, where were we? Yeah, um, okay. I do... Th- I, mm. Yeah, I don't think Pixar would really want to necessarily deal directly with themes like that. Although I do think it's interesting that Frozone is the one who knows to get out of Dodge when the police show up. Yeah, I think that must have been on purpose. I feel like that might be the closest... This movie comes to really like addressing race and stuff Probably. like that. Probably, and it's still pretty know. clearly not uh, it's directly not... race related either. Yeah, and it's also this is Frozone being probably smarter than the rest of them. Uh, true. I also think, for all I keep saying that technically this is set in the 1970s, this is also obviously not a direct analog to our society either, because honestly, dev tech looks more like you know what you'd see in friggin' Seattle or NYC or something like that. It looks distinctly modern. And there's they so much tech. Have, they did have Seattle and NYC in the 70s. Well, no, but like, it looks like a modern Seattle or New York City building. There is so much technology in these movies that I guess is aesthetically more retro looking than, you know, your average Apple store. Yeah. But it's just so much more advanced than... I think even a lot of stuff we have today. So it's this weird hybrid of like vintage pastiche and spy slick. Like we kind of talked about last week. Yeah. And I mean, it's pretty typical for superhero movies to have technology that is far more advanced than present day technology in often very specific ways. Yeah. Speaking of tech, can we talk about that Elasticycle that that Evelyn makes for her? That is so cool. That is super. It splits in half. Yeah, and, and, and she, she can, can stretch it out with it, and like use a weird rubber band effect to like zing it back together and make herself go faster. Yeah, physics. She gets a pretty extensive scene of this like stopping the train thing. Yeah, which and really parallels Mr. Incredible's failed train save, which um, was very destructive. And she doesn't pull it off flawlessly, but no, she does a lot very of... well. And we get so much cool uh, use of all her powers and stuff. Yeah, no, and I think it's interesting to compare that with Mr. Incredible's failed, or quote-unquote failed, train rescue. I don't think it was a failed train rescue. It wasn't failed. He did rescue the train. Yeah, because, like, in in both rescues, the train cars went off the tracks to a significant degree, and there was, like, some tipping involved. And it was looking real precarious and dangerous and stuff like that. She did not... They both managed to stop the train to about the same degree. That, yeah, 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 that's true. I don't know what's most interesting about it to me, actually, that it was so instantly spun as a heroic act. Do I'm sure to dev tech like behind the scenes scheming and stuff like that, and setting her up with the appropriate interviews and stuff like that. That was a huge part of it, I think. Also, Elastigirl just has a lot of poise in front of the camera, so that may also be part of it. She and does. I also wonder if 
part of it may not have been like the fact that this particular train incident, the one in the second movie, occurred at such a public event. So it was very yeah. obvious when something started to go wrong. And oh, and also like it was nothing, nothing Elastigirl did precipitated the train thing going wrong. Whereas the, like Bob dropped that bomb uh, from Bob yeah, Voyage and it yeah. landed on the track and that was a cause the explosion. Which I'm sure the lawyers for the L train victims like used against him in force. Come to think surely, of it. Surely. Yeah. So I think there are there are such similar scenes, but I don't know, it's the subtle details in like the way those scenes are constructed and the effects those have on the way those things are received. That those make all the difference. And it's so interesting to think about those things in conjunction. But yeah, no, Elastic Girl gets to be so versatile in this movie. In her past yeah. life. We talk about the moment when she goes like all sugar glider, basically. Like turns herself into a freaking kite. That was awesome. There's also the um, little bit of backstory that we learn. Uh, yeah. Like Bob didn't know she had the Elasticycle and nobody knew she had a mohawk at one point. Which, my God, I would pay good money to see the official you know, Pixar flashback art of Helen Parr with a mohawk. What was her maiden name? I, I just know. realized I don't know that. I don't know either. Huh. Yeah, yeah I would but I yeah, would love to awesome. see like teenage Helen with this like super tall mohawk or, or whatnot. Like that would be hilarious to me. I would I would adore that. That would be awesome. Yeah. And so if we can switch back to Bob and the kids for a little bit. Yeah, totally. We kind of glossed over this originally, but I think it was interesting how they handled Mr. Incredible's ego situation. Yeah. The... Can we talk about the phone call scene when Elastigirl's calling fresh off the mission? Oh, yeah. I was oh thinking like God. even in their, hotel, in their motel room when they're discussing the prospect uh, yes. of it. Yes, that too. Because, I don't know, I think it's interesting that they show that Mr. Incredible does definitely want to get in the field. And you could tell that he feels a little bit... His ego is definitely wounded. Yeah. I, I'm not going to say slighted, but he does feel a little bit frustrated that he's not the one going out there. Oh, I think he's definitely slighted. He has the stones to say, like, in front of his wife, like, basically, oh, she's a better chance than me? <laughs> like, come on. Yeah. But I think it also speaks a little more highly of him that he does realize that he's being a little unreasonably ego-driven at that point. I mean, I would... And that he... Go ahead. You know, he does commit to supporting Elastigirl in her endeavor, even if he is a little bit disappointed that he isn't the one chosen. I kind of agree with you, but I would also hesitate to call what he says at DevTech just like a knee-jerk instinctual reaction Precisely because of the conversation that he and Helen have in the motel after the meeting, yeah, and I mean, in the phone calls. I mean, that's what I'm like. Thinking it's very obvious that his ego is still coming through hugely because he has that bit about. I mean, he acknowledges that he wants her to do well at this, yeah. partly for selfish reasons because he wants to get back in the field. But still, like he can't contain his own ego long enough to have a reasonable discussion with his wife about this. Like, I mean, it's still a reasonable discussion, but his ego kind of taints that, I think. I so think he's really struggling to get it under control. just something that shows a what is clearly a character flaw of his. Oh, yeah. Without making him into a almost bad guy for that scene, just for 
having that initial reaction, I guess. Yeah. And Helen does call him out on that. Yeah. In that conversation. So yeah, that is, that is a nice moment. I will say though, that during the later phone call scene, when Helen is all like, Oh my God, I got this opportunity. That was so awesome. And she's like totally geeking out about what she's just done. Rightfully so. I mean, good Lord. She was great. Bob cannot find it in himself to be like unreservedly happy for her. He's like gritting his teeth the entire time because he's so dang jealous of her. And I'm just like, come on, dude, be happy for your gorgeous, talented, incredibly hot wife. Come on, get it together. I mean, I think that... I was really frustrated with him. I mean, I think that scene, he's definitely not being as supportive as he could or should be, but... Mm. It's not just the ego, I think, getting in the way. I think it's almost more so that at that point he is entirely exhausted and overwhelmed with watching the kids and all that. Okay, yeah, I can see that. And to be completely fair to him, he's pretty much out of his depth entirely with Jack-Jack. Yeah, and I think that is more of the reason that he's not as interested in slash actively supportive. I mean, I think that's part of the reason. I still think it's his, like, bruised ego that's... Coming that, out, I'm with, sure that you know, is venomous fangs and that. Definitely, I'm. I, I think that is playing into his entire uh, situation throughout this thing. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of Jack, Jack fighting the raccoon. Yeah. Oh okay. All three of the Incredibles kids are amazing, and yeah, I want to say it was especially cool to have Jack, Jack actually around for this movie while he was pretty much just put in the background for. The entirety of the first movie. Pretty much, yeah. Like, he is there for the beginning, but does nothing significant. And at the end, he manifests his initial powers and... Including Demon Baby and Fire Baby and Lead Baby. Yeah, and he's there. um, But in the second movie, he is a much more part of the actual plot and part of the family and all that. Definitely, definitely. Um, Which was an interesting switch up. Yeah, he shows much more of a personality. Which I think is cons- probably consistent of babies of that age. Not that I know much about babies, but they're a little more animated, no pun intended, than Jack-Jack really was in like the first parts of the movie. Of the first movie. Yeah, and he is, you know, he's going after the TV. He's oh phasing through objects. He's a little he's screen addict He's switching already. into other alternate dimensions. Oh my god. He's going outside and fighting raccoons and really kicking their ass pretty handily. Seriously. He's getting picked up and used as a laser gun. (laughs) Oh my god, that was the best part! That was the best! Which was really pretty hilarious. Honestly, yeah. Can we talk about how he was willing to screw up the entire backyard with laser eyes just to, like, murder that raccoon? Like, he was ready to... I don't know if he understands what, like, killing an animal actually is. I kind of doubt that, even though he does seem precocious. But can we talk about how he was ready to laser the hell out of that raccoon? Like, there was no mercy on his little face in that particular scene where, like, the raccoon was tangled up in the lawn chair. And Jack-Jack was coming for it. Jack-Jack has no chill whatsoever. I mean, literally no chill. He's a fire baby when he wants to be. He's no Frozone, I'll tell you that. No, definitely not. Although I'd I'd be interested to, like, see Frozone actually for real babysitting Jack-Jack and just, like... Icing his fire, mellowing his harsh or whatever. Like, I feel like that could be really funny. Yeah. Oh, Although. Frozone and honey just babysitting Jack-Jack. Yeah. Although, 
and the babysitting Jack Jack was that was spectacular. Oh my god, that was amazing. I she I adore sees, Edna, you she guys. She sees all of the powers he has, and she's suddenly like, "Yes, I'll take him." Bye bye. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was great. Yeah, and before that, she's just like, "Oh my god, I hate children. Get this like demon away from me. What the heck?" And it's interesting. And how... I love I love how Jack Jack's almost as big as she is. <laughs> and Jack Jack transforms into like a weird little chameleon copycat. Edna oh my face. god, yes. Which so he's basically Tonks. He's amazing. He's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And I do think it was interesting that Edna was both the one to first understand how his powers were working and to develop, devise some ways to get them at least partly under control, but also was sort of knew what was going on with him having a bazillion different powers and kind of discussing that he has a ton of potential and it sort of seemed like the implication was that as he got older the powers would become more stable and he probably more focused perhaps yeah but it also sounded like he might end up only actually keeping of some subset of them long term yeah as he gets older like all the ones he used when he sneezed he sneezed and like three of them came out. It was like fire something else and laser eyes. Oh man. Yeah, meanwhile, well, Jack Jack's got his whole thing going on. Uh, oh, man. Dash and Violet are just having little family issues. I feel like Dash doesn't really have much of an arc in this movie, almost. He's more of he's a. He's a little bit more of a. Comic relief. Slash, oh my god, yeah, when, they first, comic relief and when they first get into their new house and he's pressing the remote and like bringing out all the fancy stuff and then he like presses the wrong buttons and some of the like couches go into the you know retractable water features and stuff that like was, that that was pretty funny that was hilarious yeah. I, I mean, feel Dash like... is great in this movie but he doesn't really change in any dramatic way yeah which I mean he's like 10 years old yeah. I I don't think it's a problem he would I'm just thinking that's kind yeah of I feel like gone. an emotion like a really good emotional arc for him would perhaps be more interesting, more poignant when he's a little bit older, like when he's a teenager like Violet is? Probably, yeah. But yeah, his main contribution to the chaos in the household comes from his math homework. Oh my god. Which Mr. Incredible does not understand because they have changed math. Cough, cough, common core. Yeah, and I think that was kind of a funny and probably perpetually timely joke, mostly for the benefit of the parents. Oh, probably, yeah. Anyone who's had to deal with their kids' math homework. I know my parents, when I brought home my particular math homework and was doing multiplication, division, and stuff my way, they were like, why are you doing it this way? How could they change math? <laughs> pretty much the same Pretty much the same way that he was. <laughs> See, I had a completely weird situation. My mother, bless her, I love her, has never been a math person, so it got to the point where in eighth grade, when I was still homeschooled, I was teaching her math. I've told you this. Yeah. And then my dad, on the other hand is an engineer, a mechanical engineer, incredibly smart. So I remember one time in middle school when I came to him one evening to ask him to explain some, I don't remember what it was, but it was like an algebra concept. It was not that hard. It cannot have been that hard. He, I get his, the easiest way he could think of to explain it, I guess, was to start talking about like trigonometry in the unit circle. And I was just like, I don't understand what this has to do with anything. I think that's kind of a different situation, but... Yeah, it was... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And meanwhile, Violet... And this is actually pretty interesting because 
They mentioned oh offhand. Oh my god, yeah, let's first, talk about this. They mentioned offhand in the first movie that erasing memories and stuff was something they had to do sometimes yeah, to keep yeah. secret identities intact mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, which seemed like a big deal to me when I... Because I hadn't realized... I hadn't caught that any of the times I'd actually seen the movie until that last time just a few days ago. But that seems like a kind of a big deal just for a throwaway line. And yeah, in this and movie, they made a they big do, deal of it. They do make it into a plot line in what is admittedly a pretty sub-subplot. Yeah, I would agree. Basically, when they go to fight the Underminer, what's your... What's his face sees uh, Violet. Tony Ridinger, I think. Yeah, yeah. Tony Ridinger like... sees Violet without her mask, and it's like, what? And then Dicker like goes in and like kind of asks him some questions about it, and it's an interrogation scene. Actually, yeah, and that's how they. The movie. Yeah, that's how they start out the movie, which is a really interesting, like, I guess, framing device for the movie. Talking about, I guess, you know, okay, it connects to the media thing in a weird way. I bear with me for one second. Kind of cutting into Tony's the... memory is manipulated. Just as, you know, the public's sort of memory of superheroes and the damage they cause kind of gets manipulated by dev techs, like media blitz or whatnot. I guess. I don't know. I'm seeing a connection there. But anyway, yes. Let's talk about Tony. And then they wipe his memories of seeing Violet with a spring-loaded toilet plunger attached to his forehead. Yeah. Following through on the Men in Black vibes that Rick Decker was giving off in the first place. Yeah. He totally does look like Tommy Lee Jones. He does. <laughs> it's great. That sounds like him too. Yeah. Later on, it comes out that, and this is the kid who had a date with Violet set up at the end of the last movie. Oh my God. Turns this is so Turns out that cruel. he has, that it actually erased his entire memory of Violet, which. Oh my God. I was so sad about that. Is, yeah, kind of a, kind of a big deal. Yeah, totally. Violet's like 13. This is going to be like huge for her. And Everything is the end of the world when you're 13. Okay, yeah, but also kind of a big deal for Tony. Yeah, God. He doesn't know it's a big deal, but it feels like something that would be a big deal if he knew about it. Yeah, definitely. They don't really go into the morality of wiping people's memories, whether for a good cause or not. It's mostly yeah. just a matter of Violet's, like, real mad about it, and not unreasonably so. Oh, not at all. Not at all. Um, and is very vocal about renouncing superheroes. (laughs) Yeah, and that is actually what prompts um, Bob's apology to Violet. I think I mentioned this earlier. And can I just say, I love how both movies have featured, I guess in order, both parents genuinely apologizing to and validating Violet. I talked a lot about this in the last episode, and I really like that Bob didn't talk down to Violet or patronize her in any way or, or dismiss her anger as, mm. you know, just teenage girl drama or whatever. Like he acknowledges that he did more harm than he intended and whether or not he intended to, like the harm is still done. Yeah. I think that, yeah, both Bob and Helen are shown to be good parents because when they screw up with their kids they acknowledge it and apologize for it and that's a really big thing for um, characters like that to actually do those sorts of things to make sure they fit that this family and the story is reasonable and yeah, yeah. all that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So... And then thankfully Violet renounces her renunciation of superheroes later when it becomes yeah. clear that Bob and Helen are in trouble again. Yeah, and we've been jumping around here yeah, we've been jumping around so much, my gosh. I want to 
cut real through real quickly through the some of the stuff with Elastigirl and the Screen Slayer. Yeah, we Screen Slaver. That's what I said. Oh, Screen Slayer would be a badass name, though. No? That's what I actually heard in the commercials the first time. I I thought I heard like Scream Slayer at first, which is also awesome. But anyway, let's go. Let's go on. Yeah. I th- I did think it was a pretty cool sequence of Elastigirl trying to track down the Screen Slayer with a little signal poaching thing. Yeah, it was yeah. a it was a really striking visual of her like perched up on the thing with the yeah. green with the little green glow of the screen on her face and yeah, just Animation. going ar- and just like swinging around in this dusk. This is just beautiful visually. Town. That yeah. whole sequence is that the bit where she went all sugar glider. I, I think, think it was. So. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Oh yeah, she slingshots herself off and then goes like sugar glider mode. Oh, yeah. It you was really amazing. see, like, so much versatility coming out of her. Yeah. Yeah, honestly, in that sense, I would say she's a lot more powerful than Bob. I think we talked about this in the last episode, too. But, like, I will maintain the versatility, the range of her power makes her far more pow- powerful and far more dynamic than Bob could ever be. Yeah, I think there's some to be said about both of their powers really just doing thing, letting each of them do things that the other one could never do. And I think there's a lot of value in having both of them, but that's teamwork. Yeah. But yeah. That's I another, totally agree another with you. Uh, part of the thing. Yeah. And yeah, she gets in the fake screen slavers apartment and everything was pretty intense. And Oh my God. I was so tense during that. Yeah. And the, f- the whole fight scene where it's in this like, Age match with projected hypno- hypnosis screens in all the corners was this yeah. really bizarre, intense, and trippy thing. And yeah, probably was I really, really hope it didn't trigger anybody's epilepsy. Yeah, oh my God. in retrospect, it seems like really bad for that. Yeah, no, the, the theater we went to did have a warning out front, which is good. I'm not sure every theater was like, you know, that prescient, I guess, or had that much foresight. Yeah, or but, knew that the thing was in there. But anyway, true. so. Yeah, she's tracked some screen slaver, and it's turns out to not to be a screen slaver, just some guy who was hypnotized by screens the real and screen goggles. slaver. Yeah, yeah, we've already covered who the real screen slaver is. Yeah, but can we actually but, like go back to that for one second? Because I think the reason the screen slaver reveal worked so well was that Bradbird knew we had to really believe in Helen and Evelyn's budding friendship. For it to feel like the wrenching moment that it should be. Because mm, honestly, it's yeah. it's a pretty big surprise. And in order for him to really pull the rug out from under us, he had to make them really bond on screen. So I love that in you know the whole like cocktail mixer with other superheroes thing, Helen and Evelyn got to have such a substantial conversation. They got to talk about something other than, you know, the dudes in their lives. They didn't talk about Helen's kids or her ego-driven husband or Bechdel test. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they talked a little bit about that, but that wasn't the only thing they talked about. They talked about like philosophy and stuff yeah, like that almost. Some... And it was so refreshing. I loved it so much. So, for me, it was just like really wrenching when Evelyn was revealed to be the screen server. I'm like, damn it. Female friendship down the drain. But it was really well done on a storytelling level, so I can really appreciate that. I was honestly super suspicious of both of the both of the siblings the whole time, 
just I think part of it was carrying over from the last movie where Mr. Incredible was hired by what turned out to be Syndrome. Yeah. Um, and I was, I don't know, suspicious there would be some plot going on there. But yeah, they really did build up Evelyn's character very well to make that. Yeah, 100%. Surprise. And she wasn't introduced in a way that was at all sinister either. I'm really struck by the way they chose to introduce her, which was like her coming in late and like having to juggle a bunch of crap and hiding off to the, yeah, the doorman. Yeah. She was introduced in like kind of a stereotypical rom-com klutz way almost. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and like the foreshadowing, I guess, of her being the screenslaver came not from her introduction necessarily, but from her differences with her brother on the whole superhero issue, which she was open about. Like, you knew pretty early on that they had slightly divergent ideas as to what this thing should be. And you know, we knew Evelyn had some level of disdain for her brother. So there was so there was some friction there. Yeah, that yeah. was the foreshadowing, and I think it actually, I think it worked really, really well. All right. Um, while we're on the topic of Elastigirl having female friendships, can we get a shout out to Void? Oh my God! Yes. Can we talk about how Void is such a lovely counterpoint to Syndrome's toxic fandom? Because Void gets to fangirl over Elastigirl, but, I mean, she's awkward about it, but she's never, like, disrespectful or anything, and it's clear she just, like, thinks the world of Elastigirl. And also, I tweeted about this, but in case you guys didn't see it, I'm calling it now. Void is a lesbian, and Elastigirl was a source for gay awakening. Like, nobody with that haircut is going to be straight. I guarantee you. Yeah. Uh, Do you think that... It was specifically Mohawk Elastigirl that was. Oh my god, yes! Yes, definitely, 100%. Also, okay, another question I had was, this country that is presumably America has banned all superhero activity, but very few of the other superheroes that Winston gathers sound distinctly non-American. Like, Void in particular... Does now sound anything other than North American. So is she just like the gay Canadian contingent? I'm headcanoning that now. She's Canadian. I think it is not unlikely that a fair chunk of those heroes were Canadian. Yes, Incredibles first version of Alpha Flight. Give it to me. Amer- I, I meant American. <laughs> mostly because we see on the yacht in that whole ending sequence a bunch of superheroes who are all kind of accompanying ambassadors or whoever from their own home countries. That's true. That's true. So sort I of suggest that they're all the major heroes from other countries and are yeah. thus... And thus, like, the group of heroes that they've already gathered in that early point is... It sounds like they're certainly not all American. There's a few of them who have pretty strong accents. Yeah, indeterminate. I would, I'm not sure what exactly their accents are. I would have to, like, listen more or research that yeah i'm not good with accents in the first place but neither am i really yeah they're clearly a multinational group but maybe not necessarily all from different countries yeah i still like the idea of void being canadian though sure i won't (laughs) fight you and yeah that was a cool set of characters i think they're probably gonna be the ones rounding out the cast of the lego game yeah, that would be awesome. And Which I'm, I'd be really excited to play as Void, honestly. I'm excited to play the to play that. You know, Lego superhero games have all been pretty solid, so it would be interesting yeah. to see that very different sort of 
take on it. Yeah. And while we're sort of on the subject of void, let's let's talk about the fight on the ship. We really haven't touched that at all. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Violet before gets the ship, this, yeah. though, there's also the fight at the house. Right. Yes. Yes. Where all Frozone these other and all those heroes who are at the time hypnotized by the screen screen slaver. It's a bit of a tongue twister, isn't it? All show up and try to take the kids and whatnot. Yeah, and Frozone also shows up to help them. He was. I think called in by Bob before he left. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Frozone shows up and has a whole, and he and Dash and Violet have a whole fight with the other superheroes. And Dash, they manage to transfer. Oh my God, we have talked about the car. They summon the car. Yes. Yeah, and that's another really. Can we rewind to the moment when the car appears on the TV at the new Incredible House? Because that's a really another really interesting moment of Bob's ego and nostalgia which are bound up together, really getting the better of him. Because he has oh, that little yeah. meltdown like, yeah, he is... right after that. He is not doing well. Yeah, he gets real mad that the... I mean, I don't think it's totally unjustifiable because apparently they told him that the car was... Yeah, yeah, I'm with him there, definitely. And all that. But it is definitely a little bit of a ego breakdown on top of the various lack of sleep and everything he's been having with the kids. Yeah, he's been getting an obscene lack of sleep. And then they find the remote and can use it to mess with the car on live TV, which was really pretty spectacular. That was hilarious. And then, you know, fast forwarding in that crucial moment when they're under attack by a bunch of hypnotized superheroes, Dash summons the car. And there's that really hilarious, like, cutaway sequence of the car just, like, going bonkers while it's at the rich guy's house and scaring him and his cute date, who is way too cute for him, by the way. She's just somebody like Void. I ship Void in her. I don't even know who she is. But. I don't think she's sticking around with that rich guy because the rich guy went and like hid behind her as the car was going off. And then she just gives him a dirty look as it leaves. Right. I think I missed that. Man, I need to watch this movie like yep. 70 more times. So that was a fun uh, sequence with the rest yeah. of the superheroes. Yeah. And then Frozone manages to get Vi and Dash voice identification in the car just before the other heroes get the hypno goggles on him. Yeah, Great timing. Yeah. And they get away with Jack-Jack. It was they a cool Mad fight. They Mad Max their way out of there. It was a cool fight. All the heroes have very distinctive powers, which yeah. is interesting. Yeah, which end up being very distinctive visually. Like, yeah. like oh my god, especially the owl dude with his head that turns all the way around. That, that That's guy's, creepy. That guy's creepy. So creepy. I, I love the scene of Dash uh, running and then Void creates portals that he starts running into. And you get this visual of looking into one portal and seeing the same portal through it and all that yeah yeah my that, god that would very much remind me of the portal video games which i still some, really want to play those yeah they're great they have some similar effects if you're like jumping mm-hmm. out of a portal and falling through the portals into the same portals but nice. anyway some cool uh, visuals and good action oh definitely it's pretty fun then the the, the car gets out we get this cool bit of Dash, Violet, and Jack-Jack just resolving to go and rescue their parents. Which is really cool. Yeah. We mentioned Jack-Jack... Not Jack-Jack. We mentioned Dash didn't really get much of a character arc, but I think this bit of the kids having to pull everything together to save the day is a very cool thing for them. Especially because so much of the main plots focus on their parents, so it's nice that they get those moments. For sure. For sure. So yeah, that leads to some interesting... Like bits, um, like Jack Jack floating through walls again when Dash is supposed to be watching him. Um, yeah, I don't know why anybody. It's interesting how they're 
the he, the kids are always trying to avoid being the ones watching the big pee. Can you blame them though? You really can. Jack Jack has enough nightmares for like I don't know eight babies. Yeah, but you do do get that nice bit where Violet's like, okay, I have four schools, so I'm going to watch the baby right for now. And yeah, and Violet also gets that very cool fight scene with Foy. Oh my god, it's so cool. Yeah, it's it's so smartly done. A lot of the fight scenes in this movie are so smartly done, particularly with Void's power, because Void, like, Void is, is clever enough to use her power in ways that sort of undermine our heroes' like typical strategies. She Void can just, is thinking yeah. with portals. Yeah, she really is. And it is super cool to sort of watch, especially I think Elastigirl and Violet in particular, sort of adapt and change their strategies in real time. Mm-hmm. It's so cool to watch. Like, what use is a force field when Void can just make a portal inside it and just warp into it? And that doesn't, like, Violet basically win by using force fields as, like, pummeling devices and just beating the crap out of Void? Something like that. I honestly don't remember how she won. Yeah, I, I would need to, like, watch a play-by-play of that scene, but I feel like that's a huge part of it, and that was freaking awesome. She also does the same thing to the underminer drill, like, explodes oh, yeah, something in Mirror at the very beginning of the movie, like, hurls. tossing two force fields at it. It's so cool. That was awesome. She is so powerful, and I love her to death. That was awesome. She's my girl. She's yeah. my favorite. Yeah, she's great. So, yeah, and, and then... Yeah, I mean, there's a whole extensive sequence of them... Stopping all the hypnotized superheroes and then getting the ship to turn away from the city and all that. Yeah, because this ship has gone on a crash course towards the city, which maybe wouldn't have the same damaging effect on the city as like the Omnidroid from the first movie would, but it would certainly screw up lives of everybody on board. So that's not good, especially considering it's a bunch of superheroes and diplomats. And oh, can we briefly like mention how awesome the female ambassador character is? She was cool. Mm-hmm. And there's a cool bit where Void has to... Void is using her power to try to get Vi- to get Elastigirl onto the plane that Evelyn is escaping on. Yeah, and it, it's really great that it's trial and error, too. Like, it, yeah. it builds up the tension in a really nice way. She keeps catching her in portals and... And, like, juggling her, her and stuff, and it's so cool. Yep. Yeah. Elastigirl gets a little bit of oxygen deprivation while she's on the plane trying to <laughs> stop Evelyn. And, and then she gets control of the plane, and once again, her flying knowledge comes in handy, which yep, is awesome. Yep. She actually puts a air mask on and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, it's great that she gets the big climactic fight against the big bad. That is super cool. Totally, totally. Meanwhile, Mr. Incredible's just trying to mash a rudder. Yeah, well, Mr. Incredible and Frozone are trying to do the... They have important roles, like, Yeah, turning yeah. the boat away from the heavily populated metro area. Yeah, and I think that was cool because it does show that even though their powers are more destructive there are still times where they they're the only ones who like mr incredible or frozen are the only particular one who could get a particular thing done yeah there are this is going to be very nerdy terminology but i guess there are very specific use cases that work really well with their individual power sets and this particular situation really called for those specific use cases yeah it basically shows that you know, the movie first showed that Elastigirl could be really, really effective on her own. Mm-hmm. But then it also shows that all of them have particular strengths that mm-hmm. are sometimes needed. Yeah, definitely. Because as good as Elastigirl is, I don't know that she could have found a way to turn that whole boat around. I really doubt it. Yeah. I think it's if gotta she be heftier to, she than a train. Yeah. She could have done something probably with like 
The parachute, whatnot. I was thinking of either, maybe not that, but even just going inside and figuring out something with the engines and everything. Yeah, that's true. Actually, she probably, she probably could have gotten through the crushed bits to get to the yeah, engine. So. Yeah, the crusher, like, the crusher dude got all those pipes, like, screwed up so that Mr. Incredible couldn't move them to get through the engine room. Whoever wants uncrush. <laughs> oh my god, that was a great sequence when Mr. Incredible asked him to, can you do the uncrush thing? Who, who wants oh, Uncrush? God, that's great. I yeah. love that he just like gave up on that. That was hilarious. Like, okay, plan yeah. A is not working on to plan B. Yeah. And, you know, the things kind of get rounded out with, let's see, Void and Violet get a little bit of geeking out. I think Void specifically was geeking out to Violet. Yeah. I guess about how Violet beat her up or something. I can't quite... No, I think it might have been... I don't know. I think it was about something else. I don't know. That was the only like really cool flashy thing Violet. I remember Violet doing on the boat. But But again, we've only seen this movie once as compared to the literal like over a hundred times I've seen the first movie. So yeah, don't worry. I still plan to watch this movie over a hundred times. I will participate in some of those. (laughs) Fair. So I don't know. like. And then superheroes are re-legalized at the end of it. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that Evelyn waited to hypnotize everybody until after the document had been signed. I think because she wanted to make sure superheroes would, I guess, she wanted to make sure that should her plan work, people around the world would see the consequences of specifically superhero legalization. I guess so, yeah. Yeah. I think she wanted to make the, the sort of cause and effect really clear there. I guess it wasn't clear to me at first, but I, I get it now. Yeah, because like it wouldn't have made sense if the heroes had yeah. not actually waited for them to get legalized before they yeah. wrecked yeah. the ship. Oh, and brief uh, shout out to Jack-Jack using telepathy? Or no, telekinesis, sorry. I always mix up those telewords. Um, to dislodge Helen's goggles just enough for her to come to her senses. That was really cute. Ooh, yeah, that was good. And Evelyn was like, what the heck, a baby? What? Super baby? Why should we be floating? <laughs> oh my god, it was... Yeah, that was great. Yeah, yeah. But okay, right. can we like talk about, very briefly, I guess sort of the larger questions, which are main, just two that I have about like the larger like legal and political world building in this movie. Number one, why was there so little resistance to the idea of superheroes being legalized? Like surely DevTech can't have been that good at their job. I would have been more interested to see like a genuine debate happening about it, to really see the power of dev tech's sort of media manipulation on like moving that needle. I think that would have added a lot more depth to it. I was really curious as to like the as sort of behind the scenes political machinations and stuff. Yeah. Related. I'm going to go way back to the beginning of the movie for a second, specifically to when the incredible family is being, you know, browbeaten by, I guess, local police or whatnot yep. about the destruction that they caused while they were fighting off the underminer. Although really, honestly, to anybody with like eyes and half a brain, they prevented a lot more destruction than like they caused realistically. I found it really interesting that the, was it like a police officer or like a lawyer who was talking to them? I think it was a lawyer. Or some like some, administrative guy. Right. Yeah. Some like suit up politician dude. He specifically said that, you know, if you hadn't intervened, then like, then, you know, the bureaucracy would have kicked in to fix all this and things would be proceeding in an orderly fashion. I was not expecting that particular justification for 
why superheroes should not have intervened in that situation. And I'm not quite sure what to make of it. It's, it's interesting. It almost like for number fits, one, he mentions like the that the ideal state for him at least is he doesn't say that everything would have been fine and nobody would have been hurt. He said that things would have been proceeded in an orderly fashion. Yeah, which is so, so weird and like weirdly dystopian. It sounds yeah, like. it's almost like the order, things being neat and orderly and predictable are more important to that particular guy or to the system that he represents than things being almost morally right. My God, is he the cousin of Bob's crappy old boss and insurer care? Remember how, like, particular that guy was? Yep. Yeah. And it's like, for one thing, that's an awful lot of faith to be placed in government institutions. Like, does anybody here remember Hurricane Katrina? Well, Hurricane Katrina wasn't going to happen for her. Well, I mean, I know. I know, but I don't know. That was, like, one of my immediate thoughts when he was like, oh, you know, bureaucracy, order, yada, yada, yada. I'm like, do you not remember? It's an interesting idea, like government as order versus superheroes as chaos that I think is too big to explore right now, but that we might do well to consider for future episodes. Could be. I can see how that ties into like, you know, conceptions of justice and whatnot. But yeah, those were the two lingering questions I had about like the world of this movie. And I guess also two points on which I'd really like to sit down and critically compare it to like Captain America Civil War. See how those two movies like attempt to deal with the consequences of superhero and supervillain antics. Like, I think Mm, there's a really fruitful comparison to be made there, and I'm really itchy to sit down and make it. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. So... Yeah, I I think think that pretty much covers it. I would say so, yeah. The Incredibles 2, it's... It's, it was still really good, guys. Like, I loved it. I have a lot of questions about it, but I still loved it. Go see it, please. Yep. You know, I feel like wanting to know more is probably a hallmark of a good story. That's fair. Cases. That's fair. Yeah. And yeah. Um, any closing thoughts here? The kids are great. Jack-Jack is interesting. The movie ends with Viol and Tony actually going on that movie date, sort of, before um, the entire Incredible Family gets called away to do some daring do or whatnot. And I'm really Violet's curious all as like, to... Viol's all like, just get some, get some popcorn, save me a seat. I'm really <laughs> curious as to how long they'll be able to keep that from Tony. Oh, man. Like, yeah. they were not really subtle about that at all. That family glance that happened... I felt like I was intruding on something and I wasn't even in the, in the damn car. Like, I can only imagine what Tony must have been like. Like, what the heck is happening here? This is weird. I would love a short thing or something. Yes, needs to be the next Pixar short. Doing a, just doing some random, like, family nonsense in their nonsense car. <laughs> oh my god. Actual incredible the word trip, though. Yes, incredible. Yeah. Incredible, which is how it's spelled. And it's not the most, like tasteful spelling i don't think and on that note <laughs> sorry guys i guess that that's a sign that we really ought to cut this here yeah no kidding so yeah thanks for listening as always till yeah, next time pretty much laters that's it for this episode of yelling about superheroes for more yelling you can follow us on twitter at yelling abt supers or check out our website at anchor.fm slash yelling dash about dash superheroes don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and we love it if you leave us a review as well we're also taking questions for a mailbag episode that will air soon you've got till friday july 27 to ask us questions via anchor twitter or carrier pigeon if you so please 
Our theme music was composed by Rodrigo Vicente, and you can listen to more of his work at hooksounds.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.